Welcome, welcome, welcome to the first live Honestly Speaking podcast at the first virtual breakout. everybody everybody's clapping from their muted zoom screens hey. but it's live we got a live audience we're gonna make it interactive finn's in the house pull up finn and we got jim this is jim's welcoming back pod so why don't we kick off with i don't know jim what do you, i mean what, what you been up to this summer man man i was my dad in april so um that's mostly why i've um I've not been involved in a podcast. I um, just haven't had the capacity to, to deal with people. You know, I just wanted to make sure that I have enough time to myself to grieve, to not be rushed. This is one of those things that um, unless you've lost the parents, you just don't know what the fuck, you don't know what it's like. Sorry. You know, my dad died from COVID. He was 58 years old. So, yeah, it's been really challenging. So, you know, I've, I've had to work. I run a mentoring organization. I, I'm working on some big projects that I couldn't necessarily abandon. But for most part, I've just been running. Um, I run sometimes three times a day. You know, run 20 miles sometimes at one time. Not by choice, but I've lost 30 pounds in the last three months. I went from 210 to 180. And um, just focusing on my son and taking this time really to myself and just feeling my feelings. So that's really been up what my, my summer has been like, just trying to slowly get back into things, but not really rushing myself into anything. Um, because, you know, there's this, there's this always inclination to want to be productive in this ultra capitalist place. And obviously there are bills to pay, but I'm trying to put my mental health and my, emotional well-being first because without that I can't do anything else so that's really been what the summer's been like for me what's it been like for Caleb who's Jim's son um it's been it's been different for him because obviously as a kid who's accustomed to being in school with a bunch of other kids and you know my son is seven and all of a sudden this virus comes in and his grandfather passed and then he's homeschooled now and you know, it's been really interesting for him, but for the most part, he's a really interesting kid. He's just very wise and he takes everything with grace and pretty well. He's been handling it really well. Thank God he's, he's not been sick, which is the most important thing. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about this. The other night, he and I were talking about, you know, I asked him, what is his views on going back to school? And is he looking forward to that? And does he think it's safe? What would make it safe? What is... His like, I asked him what if his, if he had a plan and he was the the board of ed, um, if he was the the, the school um superintendent, what would he do in terms of um, getting back to school? And so we like we went through this whole process, and he's like, well, I would have the kids wear masks, I would have them six feet apart, and then each time I would bring like a scenario, play devil's advocate, and say, well, you know, kids always touch each other, like you always touch everything. So what do you think about that? So he'll be like, yeah, you know what? My friend Kamari, he, he does touch a lot. And, you know, so finally I got him to say, you know what? I don't think it's the right time to go to school yet. But I didn't, like, pressure him into it. But I just kind of, like, 
give him the room to explain it to me and then pose some questions as he continues to answer them. So, um, yeah, he's, he's dealing with it really well. And, um, we, you know, we've always had like very mature and like conversations since he was in his mother's womb. So he's, he's handling it pretty cool. And the kids- What are the rules with New York, the, the school system? I mean, I mean, I don't have any kids in, in the, you know, in school age or, or not at all that, that I, that I know of, um, but <laughs> that you know, that, know that <laughs> might be a little sorry. around here taking it off track here. But yeah, what is this? What are the rules with the school? Like, I don't even really know. I'm not even up on it. Yeah. So it's the, the interesting thing with New York is you have this race to oblivious. I've been oblivion with Cuomo and the Blasio, you know, they're playing who, you know, they're playing this game. Who's bigger than the other. Uh, so Cuomo would, would do something on the state level and the Blasio would be like, well, we're doing this on the local level. And obviously New York City school system has a million students, right? And, 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 and above. The teachers union, and, and obviously I tend to be very union friendly, but the teachers union when it comes to some of these issues are very challenging, right? So for example, there's a proposal to have this hybrid system where you have half of the kids in school half at home and you switch back and forth and they wanted to have cameras in different corners so if you're a kid who's not there you can see it from all angles and understand what's happening you don't miss anything the teachers union opposed to that because they say well we don't want to put our teachers um in a position where they're going to get sued for doing something wrong and it's like if you're a teacher you're going to be in a classroom what you can possibly do wrong that you're so afraid of being sued that you can't even work out a compromise. So the union is really just protecting the teachers in essence, rightfully so in some ways, but sometimes it, it becomes a bit more challenging because you also have a ton of private schools in New York, right? And you have a ton of schools that are not private, but they might as well just be private because they're all white and very rich. Um, as you know, New York City has the most segregated school system in the country, the liberal bastion, the liberal bastion. Shout out to, to the nice white parents. She let us. She let us all know, yeah, Eve yeah. Ewan. Um, so, and you have private schools, obviously they have their own world. They do whatever they want. Literally you have charter schools, which is partially private and kind of public in some ways. It's interesting. And then you have public school itself. And some of these charter schools share buildings with the other public schools. So it's really, again, complicated. And the approach right now is to do it on a local level as small as possible allowing each principal, each school district, each zip code to sort of like figure out a plan that works best for them. So you have three options. You can either accept your kids go to school full time. You can do hybrid, half home, half school, or you can just do completely home. So, you know, we chose to be completely home, um, but mostly for the teacher's sake, because the kids most likely are probably gonna be okay it's probably going to be those middle-aged um, black women um, teaching these kids that's going to pay the highest price. And we just didn't think that was a good option. So that's what it's looking like right now. Jim, it's crazy hearing you talk about all that because obviously I'm hearing it from the back end, right? Court, uh, yeah, my fiance is at a charter school in Brownsville. So, you know, I'm hearing all the back and forths and, you know, she is one of those charter schools that splits, you know, she's on one floor, they're on the other. Right now, just a shade under 50% of the parents want to go virtual. They're saying they need to be at like 
70% potentially to push back. And it's tough, obviously, no, none of the, you know, this is like the two sides, right? None of the, none of the teachers really want to be in these schools, but a lot, but obviously at least a split of the parents do. And it, you know, I can hear her on Zooms all day. It's a disaster trying to get kids to be focused on Zoom and technology and not to, not to talk about the, you know, every single city in America, the amount of kids that are, you know, housing insecure. Uh, and so they're working from shelters, they're on these Chromebooks, they don't want to turn their cameras on because they're embarrassed. You know, it's just, it sets up all these other hierarchical, you know, we already live in this caste hierarchical world and it's just that much worse Literally highlight all of the inequities we always talk about, right? Like this pandemic has just put the spotlight right on it. And, and the school system is one of the places where it's most blatant um, because you have parents who, they may be completely against sending their kids to school, but they have no choice, right? They have three jobs, two jobs, and they have other kids and they have to make things happen in the school. It's not only daycare, but it's where the kids get the education. But for a lot of the kids, if they don't go to school, they don't eat. That's, that's, that's a real deal. And you have, I think in New York City, about 200,000 students that are homeless. And all of that, you have to you know, incorporate all of that into the decision-making process in the richest city on earth. So, you know, it, it's really challenging. It's crazy how they, you know, I didn't think, you think about like public services and how kids double up at school as for school, but also sources for food. Yeah. You know, kids who are on free and reduced lunch, they go out and that is their breakfast and lunch for the day. I think mostly mm -hmm. their lunch. Yeah. But you think about how the underserved neighborhoods that are kind of cast aside for, for specific reasons we can get into but how like they their public services they have to kind of bundle up into different things right it's like not to get ahead of ourselves with the po but the police are like doubling up as very bad social workers right you always get these communities that have to like fold up a suite of public services that they should have access to into these kind of bare bones things and it's it's crazy no that's real I mean, you have an incident in Philly where a kid during a Zoom class was playing with a toy gun and the fucking teacher called the cops. You know, those are the, <laughs> those are the type of things that, that we're talking about in a country that loves its Second Amendment rights. But, you know, very unique circumstances in some ways. But again, those are things that we're going to have to expect moving forward. We got to keep an eye on, I think, because we already have our teacher, our first couple of teacher casualties, don't we? The, yeah, yeah. The, there's like three or four. There was an editorial out about that they passed, and it was only a couple of weeks since the school opening. Um, there's going to be more of that, too. And yep. I think if you look at the states and where they are, I think all of the states are former Confederate states, a.k.a. have Republican governors. Yep. So I, I think there's going to be more of that concentrated in those kinds of states that are obviously doing things a lot differently than a Democrat-run state and city. Right. But, but, but also, I'd be mindful that a lot of Democrat-run states and cities usually are where you find your underserved communities, right? In, in the Chicago's, the New York, the L.A.'s, and you have mostly black and brown Latinos in the public school system and all the white parents send their kids to private school or neighborhood schools that are like private schools. So they don't have as much space per se if you go to Idaho or Texas or some of these places where it's just rural and you got spaces everywhere and the weather is, might be better all year round where you can actually have outside classes and gym outside and so many of these things. Um, and some of the cities I'm talking about, you don't have that. 
Um, you don't have that luxury in some ways. And you also have more students having to pile on top of each other. And they're going back to overcrowded homes, right? That was one of the main reasons why black and brown communities were hit right. the hardest. Multi-generational not, homes, too. Exactly, right? You got yeah. grandma and you got mom and you got the child in the spot trying to make life work. And the child is going to school, interacting with 100 people and then coming back to the home. That's tough. You know, you have to choose between educating the child and the child falling back or killing grandma or mommy. Um, those are, those are the, the decisions that have to be made. And obviously the decision makers, most of them, never have to live with the decisions they make. Jim, um, I, got a, I got a question for you. Yeah. It, it, it's a bit rhetorical because I, I kind of know what you mean. But uh, obviously I sent you that article. There were some shootings on the block you grew up with in Crown Heights. Mm-hmm. Every article in New York, you know, the papers, especially the posts and, you know, mm-hmm. are, ju- are, are talking about all the increase in shootings, which there are, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your, your buddy who's growing up is running for city council in, in Flatbush, Edwin Raymond, who some of you might know of, is part of like a group of 12 NYPD uh, police officers who whistleblowers have been suing the NYPD. I'm curious of, of what's happening because, you know, the, a lot of people are saying, oh, the shootings are going up because the policing is, la- is, is lacking. But, you know, you're from these communities where this is happening. You're talking to some of these youth, you know, you're working with some of these youth, you know, what's the, what's the word that you're hearing at the community level? Yeah, multi-prone. Um, one is, so this, the cops, what they've done pretty much is the cops held the city hostage. They're like, if you don't give us overtime, we're not working. So they literally just decided to let crime go. Like they just literally fell back. Everybody knows it. All elected officials know it. Um, anyone with half a brain knows that's what's happening. So around the protests and defunding the police, which kind of happened and not even really, the NYPD budget is so big. It's like the same budget as like half of the countries in Africa. That's how big the damn thing is. So, but, you know, these guys, their bread and butter is overtime. So if they get off work at four o'clock, they find a way to arrest someone for some nonsense at 345. Paperwork takes another six hours. They buy they whoever a little boat in Long Island and and you know that's the American dream. That's the sweet part of the meat they get for keeping us in line. Um, and when you pull that away from them, now you're asking for a fight because the way they view themselves is as the guardian of the city, which the rich white liberals pay to keep us in line and check so business can go as usual. And then. On the other side of that, you have the internet moving so fast and a lot of young people now being able to get access to stuff faster than ever before. You know, like growing up as a kid in the hood, you know, we had to do different things to make money. We had to hustle all sorts of ways. Now kids don't have to do that anymore. Kid can just have a cell phone and they're scamming through the cell phone. So they never even have to go outside and deal with with the cops. So now the kids have more money to buy weapons. And, you know, there's a lot of rap beefs happening. This whole drill music scene in Brooklyn, which is insane now because 20 years ago, if you're a rapper, you needed someone to give you an opportunity to put you out there. Now a kid literally have access to the entire world on their cell phone. So you have these young kids, 14, 15, most of them I know, who are rappers now making a ton of money driving big cars, buying big guns, and sadly beefing with each other over a lot of stupid stuff. And 
the beefs escalate so much faster now again because they can communicate with each other in like a second. And it's even more complicated now because you don't have a hierarchy as we used to have growing up as a kid. It was like Crips, Bloods, Latin Kings. Now you have like a million different small sets within bigger sets and you have young kids who are 16 making decisions who has a lot of money, a lot of power. So they are sort of like the OGs themselves at a very young age and don't always understand the repercussion of shooting at a crowd. And the fact that obviously everybody's wearing a mask and a flag in their face and that's, you know, that, that certainly has increased some of the violence, but it's really happening between a very small group of kids. When I say kids, I mean from like 14 to about 25. And unfortunately, a lot of those kids don't even know how to hold a gun. And so there's a lot of collateral um, damages. And the cops know about the kids who are involved in this, but the cops, the tactics they're using are not really working because they are breaking a lot of laws in order to arrest these kids. And they may have a case and they have the gun, they have everything, but they arrested the kids illegally and nobody's willing to talk to the DA, so the cases fall through. So that's been a part of that, that, um, that back and forth feud between some of these young brothers. Um, well, Jim, I, I wanna, I, we got my, we have so many good people in this audience. I wanna call on Eric if you're, if you're down, but my buddy Eric uh, runs an organization called Made in Inglewood. He does a lot of work in North Lawndale in Chicago, and just, you know, he's out there. So, you know, Eric, maybe you wanna, tying a bit, you know, kind of on your end and what you're saying? Yeah, it's more than I can really even speak of here. It's complicated, right? There's so many issues that, like everything, it's, it's not just one issue, it's all related. And even with like, so we had an uptick in crime, um, especially here in Inglewood. Um, North Lindale has been pretty on pace what they usually do. But it, it's, it's, it's very complicated in terms of the just like the one in the need right so most of these communities it's the same there always was where there's a lack of access to most things so like in the same thing here in chicago we have a ton of people that want to be rappers with the you know because people are getting signed like that right so you yeah, can be, like yeah you don't even have to have that big of a following it's, just, it's almost like the new scam right i just yeah. need to hot <laughs> enough to get so somebody, somebody to you know get a little internet fame someone to come give me a bunch of money for a contract yeah but yeah with that comes like, I know, and even that's a problem, right? You give someone enough money to go buy a car, but most of us are living with supporting our whole families, right? So now how do you, one, live that lifestyle, but also support multiple generations of families too. And, and also keep on this, this um, front of what you're doing. A lot of these things too are just like generational. Like some of these beefs have been around for years. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if anyone's noticed the thing that happened here in Inglewood on not, not too far from me. Um, where there was a shooting of a young man and uh, the community started to protest. And even that was a very, very, very complicated situation. So there was an issue where uh, um, a lot of, well, protesters came to Inglewood to um, basically protest the um, shooting of a young man and protest that issue. And there was this sense that the community of Inglewood kicked them out, right? So there was a, it, I'm not sure how much news it made. It made a lot of news around here, but the idea that Inglewood kicks out the protesters. Truth is, it was a very, very, very complicated situation. So it's a complicated situation of tension already with the police. 
um, tension in Inglewood, which has, um, I'm being very specific, Inglewood's a community of South Side Chicago, but um, tension with the neighborhood already, because we've been through this where we've had huge protests with the police that ended in mass amounts of violence, um, like 10, 15 years ago. So knowing that and seeing that happening. So again, it's always a, a complicated situation and many factors. I'm only talking about the factors of the hardships that people are going through, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Eric, you, you um, obviously, um, there's a saying that when America catches a cold, black people catch a flu. So anything bad you can think that has happened in the last three, four months, all of that usually rests with us. And it usually rests with a lot of young people who, again, they don't have the luxury of going to a mom's house or they don't have any of that support. So what they hunt is what they eat. And when you got to survive, you got to survive, right? And so you add all of that with, again, the opportunities you're referring to. Now, by the way, the kids in my neighborhood who I've raised, who are now have millions of followers on Instagram, driving Rolls Royces and have half a million dollar chains, they, a lot of them really started to get into this music because of Chief Keith. you know? They, they love him, they call him like the drill, sort of, they call him the drill sergeant, meaning that as the person who really got drill music going on, on this side of town. And, White kids are buying it like dope. And it's incentivized. I mean, I, it's insane. I walk around Park Slope, Cabo Hill, these, and I see these kids listening to the stuff in a way and loving it. And then I know the consequence of those lyrics, right? I know I'm gonna get a call, one of my kids is dead, and yeah, and it's crazy, man. And the cycle continues, and these kids- We, we talked talk about this before, man. Which was in our like, podcast, it's, it's insane. And the people running to sign these young men, who are they? They live in, you know, Hamptons and the Greenwich, they don't have to live with the consequence. They kids never have to live with that shit. And the trauma and the violence is being sold and it's being bought and these kids are getting signed like this. One Yeah, but that's not, that's not new though. I mean, Jay-Z, what, when not. he came up in like the 90s, mainstream, mostly people not from the situation Jay-Z is talking about, buys his music and elevates him into you know, this, this commodity. Like, I mean, that's kind of always been the case, right? 100%. I, mean, I think the thing though with technology now, it just happens, like Jay had to go through a process. I mean, literally now kids put out one song, YouTube, they have Instagram followers and then boom, right? Like, right. Th yeah. that, that, no that, more gatekeepers. Nah, no well, more not, gatekeepers, you know? Well, there's some gatekeepers, but the wall, the, like the, you know, the, the walls that entry are, uh, or the barriers to entry are lower. So more people, it's more democratized. But do yeah. you think, do y'all think that, so neighborhoods that are just more deprived through a history of, of um, you know, American, yeah, policy, yep. deprived specifically, purposefully through policy, they are just more like criminogenic areas. There's just more crime that results from a deprivation and a concentration of joblessness, poverty, and multi-generational just, just debts and, 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 and being in poor neighborhoods. So then crime is a natural result of those things. Do you think, I, I, it's, it's my opinion that the music is more a reflection of those things that are systemic rather than the music is causing more violence. I mean, I, th I can see, I, I could probably, maybe there's a little bit of a symbiotic relationship where there's, the music can incite certain things, yes, but yes. I think it's, it's, it's the poverty and it, it is the economic causes which are intensified now because the, the economy's hey, bottomed. And you're a million percent right. There's no doubt about that. 
you know, the music is not the cause. Just like this country sells violence all day long. Right, right. Football is violent. Hollywood is violent. They drop bombs everywhere. War is good for money. There is no doubt about that. Violence is an American business and it's good for capitalism. So we get that. However, a 15, 16 year old having access to certain things and not fully understanding the consequence of life yet, that sure. can be problematic in many ways, right? Like this is not unique to these kids. Like the Italians, the Irish, the, you know, they, they ran the city and bodies were all over the city in the seventies and eighties. And it wasn't black kids doing it. Um, and what happened for those communities? They got more opportunities, right? They got stuff, they got things and they, they, they're allowed to change and evolve. And now they're running other things um, moving forward, right? They became white. These kids, a lot of them won't have that opportunity. So we understand this is not necessarily the cause, but nonetheless, it's real, right? Try to have a conversation with a mother whose 16 year old was just gunned down. None of that history matters to her in that sense. But yeah, I mean, those are the issues that's obviously driving that. These kids, that's what they're after. They're after a way to get out of the circumstances. And one way to do it is this music, which people are willing to throw um, money at them. It's one of the, 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 the closest thing they have to, to, to meritocracy. Hey, Jim, I have a quick uh, question for you. Uh, actually, to, to, to everyone. Actually, good to see you. I just jumped in. I don't think I know everyone on here, but I'm, I'm jumping in from Baltimore and I, I've been listening for a while. And so the same thing has happened here, right? Obviously, like we, we've had a lot of uh, gun violence, uh, just like Chicago, um, always, but it, it has picked up here. And I'm curious, um, the past couple of weeks, I've been putting out uh, a shit ton of fires, uh, mediating stuff, yeah. all kinds of like crazy stuff in the neighborhood. So my question is, are like the OGs or like the folks who like have influence of the communities, are they stepping up in times like this and talking to folks? Because in my experience, a lot of young folks, like, you know, they, they're killing people for over $200. I mean, like for around $200 here in Baltimore. And a lot of young people do not know how to resolve conflict yep. in a way. And so like our older folks like being active and like, cause like when stuff happens in the hood, like we know who the shooters are. Are we actively engaging them and, and talking to them? Are you seeing that in, in your neighborhoods or in Chicago? Yeah. Yes. Um, it's hard, right? Because I, I mean, I'll give you an example. I have a group of kids I know and um, they are, First of all, there's like a big part of this whole feud has to do with the killing of this young man who reminds me so much of myself, Pop Smoke. Um, you know, he's a part of the, this what they call the Wu, who are like Bloods and Crips coming together, beefing with the folks, the GDs, GDK. Yeah. And so let's say there's a young man I know and I see him and I talk to him and he'll put on his best side as he's talking to me and I'll say to him, man, I know what happened last night. I'm gonna need you to do A, B, C, and D. And the kid will look at me in the eye and say to me, look, Jim, I respect and appreciate you, but when you go up to the Upper West Side or go hang out with some of your rich friends in Connecticut, I'm going to be here having to worry about my life, right? The, the ops, which they call they're not hearing that. They don't care whether you talk to me, whether your words, you know what I mean? Like, I need to have this grip on me because it's either me or the ops. 
Right. Um, and in that sense, Chris, it becomes really hard, right? Like, what do I tell that kid when there are so many bigger factors in their lives which I can't change, including where they live, what they have access to? You know, it's, it's just really challenging. But there are a lot of – one of the things that's been working a lot is um, violence interrupters, right? Yeah. It's been major in terms of, you know, these are dudes who credible and have been in the street. But they also, Chris, as you know, man – some of the youngsters now, they, they like, they look at the OGs like, man, you, you watch. Like, my guns are bigger than yours. Um, I have more money than you. I'm driving a faster car than you. So, right. you know, I got a million followers. And it changes the game. Like, that level of communication we used to have 15, 20 years ago has changed a lot, man. Right. I, I understand the that. Again, Chris, by the time we find out, man, the thing already escalated, like, over, like, a second. Yeah. You know? I mean, so, I, I agree with that. Like, once someone is killed... Like it's, it's some in some instances it's uh beyond the point of return, right? right? And so like what I try to do, what I, I had to resolve a couple of uh real complicated beefs um here in Baltimore. And like I never really tell I never tell people like what they should do. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't carry a gun. Yeah. You shouldn't like hustle because I get it. Like I come from yeah. the same lifestyle. Yep. And like what I try to what I try to advocate for is like like killing. Like you don't have to kill someone over this or like and just like try to figure out ways especially people who are out dealing drugs and stuff. And it's like, you want to make money, you want to deal drugs or whatever. I get it. Like you can't get job opportunities or whatever, but like the killing is like, I, I try to get people to think about that. And I also like, I don't tell people like, like what to do. You shouldn't do this or whatever, but I roll out, I try to paint scenarios. It's like, all right, how long do you think this going to last? So like the people that was in the neighborhood who like had the cars and the half a million dollar chains, like where are you at right now? And it's like they dead or they in jail. Like there's no longevity in this. And so I try to plant seeds about like what different options are for them, like different paths that they can take. And it don't always work, right? But like I, I try to like target like the shooters or the people like that have influence and charisma in the communities. And I try to get in their head. And sometimes I try to take them out, even though like people do the same thing to me. Like, oh, I saw you up in New York or, or whatever. But like sometimes I take those same people and I take them out to those places. So I show them different stuff and I kind of school them on like how, you know, how I got here or how we were able to do this stuff. And every now and then people like want to experiment or they leave their guns in the houses and like they, they take a chance or whatever. And I'm not saying like this is the solution and that it works, but like it's still worth it for us, for who've who been there and done it and got out the game. We have a responsibility to help lead our kids because a lot of these young folks out here, they lost. And they letting that music, speaking of music, of course, they yeah. letting the music guide them. And it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say one thing. I guess one thing is asking the question, are people stepping up? Yes, and but some cases, it's too late for right now, right? It's hard to step up right now if you haven't been there for the longest. So even if we're talking about violence interrupters, um, to become one, you'll be doing work for six years later. Someone who's probably like 12 now, and you work with them. But it's hard to, if, like, say, if you were in the game and you got out for whatever reason, you went to jail, it's hard to talk to someone and say, um, you should stop doing this. We look at you being honestly like, oh, you got caught and now you're working as a violence interrupter. Why am I listening to you? So it's just being honest and having honest options. So usually it's just like when someone, we have that conversation about don't do this, just having an option of, okay, what can I do? Yeah. I mean, most people, even when you offer jobs and things like that, 
it's the question of, is this a sustainable job? Can I have this for a long term? Because that question of, is this short money or long term money? They know it's short term yeah. money. Yeah. It's also a long term job. No one's turned that down. They're doing that math in their head. Yeah. But they also realize this is exploitive. Like everything's exploitive. Like, how can you tell someone to be a little bit exploitive? But, you know, <laughs> that's what we're asking you to do, you. right? If you work I mean, in a capitalistic system, you're saying, be this exploitive, same exploitive as we are. Like, no, I'm going to be exploited as much as I can for the uh, limited time that I have. And that's okay. real. I mean, one, one thing is Jim, I hold on one second. Jasmine, I wanted to, I want to, uh, Jasmine, Jasmine basically runs the West Coast. So I want to hear some <laughs> West Coast, um, hear some West Coast views on this. On like how music influences young people? Sure. Yeah, we're still on that, I think. Okay, bet. Um, well, I'm Jasmine, everyone. I live okay. on the border of Berkeley in Oakland, California. And um, currently I'm one of the producers of the Black Joy Parade and I work at Skillshare as a creative director. But before that I was working in the public school system for several years, um, mostly with middle and elementary school students. But it, it's, it's true, you know, like music and culture, it, it influences our young people. And it's, I feel like being an educator, you couldn't go in there being ready to like watch these movies and be like, okay, I'm going to go in and change these students' lives. Like you have to be, you have to understand where they're coming from and what drives these actions, what drives these, what drives the, the violence in these communities. And a lot of it is of course, like it's lack of resources, it's lack of access. And as at the time I was a mindfulness instructor and like the only thing that I wanted to guard my students with was the ability to be able to have tools to communicate what was going on with them and with the hopes that, you know, several years down the line with that being like a normalized practice that next time they've got beef with someone, if they weren't compelled to talk it out with them at the very least, they were compelled to just like back off. But I mean, I, I think our country's so deeply invested in our community staying this way. And I, I put it in the chat, but basically my, my commentary was, it's so easy for these music execs and the entertainment companies to continue to perpetuate a narrative of what it means to be black and what black communities are. Yep. Uh, it's so much easier for them to throw billions of dollars into perpetuating this narrative through film, television, music, and not to shade anyone who's doing gangster rap or trap or any of that. If that's your real life story, tell your story. But there's so, there's so many other stories. There's so many other perspectives of blackness. There's so many other um, experiences that black people are having that aren't making it to the top 40 billboard charts. Yep. Um, and that's by design. And I think it's just so sad how it's easy for those same companies to donate all that or put all that money there as opposed to giving like a fraction, the smallest fraction of it to education in those same communities or to investing in black businesses like people like our country is not invested in that at there's, all. there's a, a ted talk i sent out to ed and Fob a few months ago it's been making its way around and it's pretty much this white guy talking about the reason why we consume um jazz everything we consume the way we do he said simple as that talking about killing black people is profitable um he said and he gives several examples of when a rapper talk about like killing an animal or killing a white person. Immediately, those rappers will get reprimanded, they get pulled down, they get dropped by their labels. Like, 
in a heartbeat, right? Rick Ross is one of them, one of the examples he give. But yet, talk about killing black people, that's entertaining. Um, it's been that way because this country's been killing black people as long as we've been here. So what's the big deal? And especially if it's on a nice beat and, and it's lovely and I grew up on that. I mean, you know, like 50 Cent was my God. Um, and when you're a kid, you don't understand anything bigger than what you're hearing in this box that you're in when you've not been exposed to the world and you think this is the only way you have out. So it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And it all goes back to economics. And, and that's, that's, that's the truth roof, like Spike would say. So. I think it, I want to separate two things, though, because I think it gets really, really complicated, right? So the music thing where we can say what kind of music bubbles up in the charts or people like to. I think that that's, you know, there's obviously a history there and I think that it's tied to a, re a reductionist view of black life and, we, and minstrelsy and we can talk about all of that too. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the thing I wanted to separate is gangs and violence in deprived neighborhoods have been a thing before hip hop. They've been a thing since segregation. The 30s, the 40s, or even, even in the 20s, the rate of crime and violence in black neighborhoods has always been the highest than any other neighborhoods. So I think there's a couple of things going on here and I think it involves um, the police in one way. When you have a neighborhood that is segregated into private resources and there's gonna be crime, but not only crime, violent crime, it's the, the way people inside of that community gird themselves against violence in a practical way is to build a collective with other people to protect yourself against oh, violence, yep. right? So these are how, here's the practicality of gangs. Yep. So the way that gangs pr proliferate in that context is also intensified because police officers who come in and bang heads and kill people in these neighborhoods are doing it to preserve the borders of the suburbs, yep. right? Preserve, yep. keep in the people in these red lines. 100%. But what they're, even though they're, they are, they are overpopulating these neighborhoods. What they're not doing is they're not solving murders. Yep, so true. murders are going completely unsolved, and yep. that that continues to, uh, you know, uh, uh, people become it, the sort of the, the 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 neighborhood itself. People have to retaliate against that violence. So it just sort of reproduces. It reproduces the violence. That's the fucking word I was trying yeah. to think of. So it reproduces the violence, right? So the police are there not to solve murders, not to intermediate between spreading further violence. They're there to, they're there to bang heads. Yep. So in lieu of the police and the service they're supposed to provide in, in mitigating violence and solving murders, um, gangs take it upon themselves to solve it. It's street justice, right? This is what rap is about. So if you're talking about a neighborhood that is already violent and people are, are collectively girding the violence in gangs in a practical way in lieu of police protection, it's, it's only going to perpetuate it more. And then the music or the poetry or whatever is reflective of that, like yes. the humanity within that. So I think it's just, you know what I mean? So I don't want to just like, I see the practicality in gang violence sometimes in that context. It is unfortunate that the neighborhoods are, are, are institutionally built that way, but like, that's that though that is a complication that I'm seeing. You know what I mean? And, and all of that is real. And ultimately, though, who is benefiting from that violence? Who who's 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 cashing in on on that violence? I spoke to Edwin the other day. I'm like, man, do the cops know? And this is a guy who's high in the NYPD. Right. His word to me. He turned to me. He said, man, come on, Jim, don't don't play. You know the answer. They don't give a fuck. As a matter right. of fact, the clearest rate is crazy. Exactly. Like, these black mothers know the clearest rate. Like yep. all these bodies in the red. Like it's crazy. Now it's like 
you kill that one, we lock you up. We didn't have to do it. We got rid of two of y'all. Great. They keep going the cycle. They're not preventing crime, right? Because they know a lot of these things are going to happen. It's not a part of what they have to do. As long as that shit don't get into white people's neighborhood, keep it where it's at. That's the reality. Just don't let it spill out of this box because now it becomes bad for business if I can't get my $7 coffee because this kid is shooting down the block. That's when it becomes a problem. So the other day on Prospect Ave, Prospect Park, went dropping ocean. 4 p.m. in the afternoon, a white couple from like Ohio, some shit visiting, walking by, kid rolled up in the BMW, let off seven shot, husband hit three times in the back, now he's crippled. Man, that corner in that area, I've never seen as much police there as (laughs) as I've seen since that happened. As sad as, as unfortunate as that was, that crime was solved, that kid was arrested, they found him, they put as much police as they possibly can, they wanted to reinforce that it's okay, it's safe, in that particular instant. But usually, when someone like that do not get hit in that, that, that conflict, it's another kid who gets hit, as you said, Ed, it just moves on. Nobody cares, nobody solves it, there's no preventive measures, and... Jim, what's the cycle? Well, Jasmine, what were you going to say, Jasmine? Oh, yeah, yeah, I liked it, yeah. Well, the thing I was going to say was that, I mean, I was, would love to hear from you, Professor, just like from a historical <laughs> standpoint, like, uh, the creation of gangs. I mean, my understanding is that in many places it was in, in response to a lack of policing and a lack of resources in communities. Like, yeah. I have family who's living down in, in Brazil right now, and they were saying that the only folks who were like, keeping people safe and resource in the favelas are, are the, the local gangs. And, you know, if we can put that on a timeline against, okay, when crack was introduced into black communities in the eighties, like mm. where gangs switched from being like community member, community yeah. protectors, community yeah. security to, okay, well, this is now how we fund. Profitable now. Yep. Um, I just think that there's a really interesting correlation there with like the villainization of gangs. For sure. I mean, yeah. when they first started, there was they started to actually literally Crips was community something against police something. That, I mean, that's what Crips stand for. They were literally right. founded to protect the community from police violence. That right. was the originality of gangs in America. Um, and then it, it switched over over the years as evolved. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know uh, sort of the, the, the origin of American gangs, but I, and I can assume that there were probably gangs in, in, the, in the late 19th century, like, you know, after after the fall of Reconstruction and everything turned violent. I'm quite sure that black people in, in the South uh, before they came to the North probably formed gangs, um, you know, the revival of the Klan and all those things. But like you said, this is not, you know, a specifically exclusive American thing. You, you compare to other societies. Um, this is true with deprived communities. Um, these, you know, these are the, the, these are the sort of the measures to, to, to try and, and, and gird against those things. Um, you do what you can with your conditions. And, you know, I always, you, you see the things that, that communities in the country do, whether it be black communities or whatever. Um, and you see that you're like, why would they do this? Why are they so, there's always some practical reason behind it. You just got to dig deeper. You know, that's one of the biggest things I've learned. If it is, if it's a, if it's a pattern that persists, if it's not just some kind of anomaly, there's, there's always some practical decisions going on behind it. Um, and it is always driven by the conditions. 
you know, so that's all. Yeah, I, I want to totally derail this conversation into something different, but I just feel like I, I, I was just looking at Courtney. I want to call him out. And I just, I was like, what would Courtney want to ask? Cause I wanted him to ask a question. And, I, and so I thought <laughs> about it. I was like, I got to bring the juice a little bit. And I know Courtney would want us to talk about the Oscars. Give us the right. tea, Courtney. We, 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 we got to talk Before about the Oscars. Before you start, Courtney, let me, let me pour another drink real quick. Go ahead, Courtney. Thank and Courtney, <laughs> Courtney, there's no way that we can't bring this up with you on. Okay, give me some more boundaries. What do you mean the Oscars? Tell me more. Diversity. Like, Oscars, yeah. affirmative action. What is people are pissed? What's going on? Um, well, I don't know that much about that rec- in, in this recent moment. So uh, I feel ill-prepared. But... Um, I feel like representation, I will, I'll, I'll go here with the conversation. I feel like re- representation across all the boards have been just um, non-existent. And I think that we are just now having these conversations in the past like three to five years. Um, but I, I think the disconnect is the majority not really seeing it as a problem. And we need to figure out a way to make people realize how impactful representation is. And that's just not with the race. Um, I mean, with LGBTQ people, with trans people specifically, with everyone, Asians, like whatever the case, um, it's just, everything's just so white, not to use that pun, but yeah, I mean. I just, um, wanted, I just wanted to open it up. I, we, we actually haven't talked about it on the pod at all. It just dropped. Obviously, Twitter was hilarious on it. You know, I'm totally blanking on her name. I think it was Christy Alley was like, oh, my God, it's all over. <laughs> the awards are done, uh, which always is hilarious to me because it's a, you know, a self-aggrandizing, you know, thing as is. But uh, obviously, I imagine yeah. we're very pro. <laughs> it's good yeah, and one, it's necessary. I hope this produces more Green Books. I'm just kidding. I never, I never saw that movie. I probably never will. But I mean, if you look at the requirements, they don't even kick in until what, 2024? Yeah. And then you look, they're very barely bare minimum. I mean, you could accidentally um, hit a lot of those requirements without even trying. So I think it's like 30% cast. No, it's like 30, it's like 30% production crew. And then you like want, you have to have one lead role from a person from an underrepresented group. That's, and that's everybody except straight white males. So any, that could be from any other group. I mean, the requirements are just so basic. There's right. so, it's such a minimal ask. Like you could have an intern, you could have a, a, a few <sighs> interns who aren't paid, who have, who aren't on screen and meet those requirements. It just, like the fact that people are so enraged is, is actually comical because it, like you said, Eddie, you could accidentally meet these requirements. This is gonna be like the Rooney rule. People are going to find all sorts of ways to get around this. The other thing is that people are forgetting one important aspect of this. Look, this place don't do shit because they think it's morally right. This place do things because they see an opportunity to make money. The bottom line is they saw what Black Panther did. They know America is changing. They know that most people watching TV right now are Latinos and and Black people watching a lot of damn TV. And that's going to continue to go in the next 50 years. And they're realizing that this is also good for business. They're not doing this just because it's the nice thing or the right thing to do. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. This is also a business move. Um, these people are seeing where things are going. They're realizing that uh, these stories, the content which they're interested in, is going to make money. 
That's the reality. Trust me. I've talked to executives. They're not going to invest in stuff simply because they want to be nice white people. That doesn't happen. So I think on the backside of that is another thing for us to consider is that there is money to be made in this. Black people spend money on a lot of shit and entertainment is a huge one because for us, we can't go to Broadway to watch a show for 300. Well, I can, I can, um, but most of us can't. And so what do we do? We go to a movie for $12. And so I wanted to be real about that. Not that I have it like that, but the truth is I do go see Broadway plays. So I'm I would just, say congrats on being rich. To think about. <laughs> we all know Jim, he moonlights as a one percenter. Nah, man, I'm a, I'm a privileged poor. I just know a few rich people who's like, man, I got an extra ticket and I always take it. It's so interesting to hear this conversation because I just, I was in one with uh, Natalie Molina and Erica Alexander. She was talking about how it took a village to produce a John Lewis movie, but you can find any which way a Hitler movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It's, it's so real. So real. Yeah. I mean, Chris Wilson, who's on, on this, you know, was talking before, he's been trying to sell his like book rights for like three years now. Chris, you've been working five years. He's working yeah. with like every major person. It's not like he doesn't have like real representation. He's working with like A list representation. And you, you know, you can't not question, you know, what that has to do with it. Yeah. It's complicated. Well, to yeah. Jim point, it's pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, do y'all, do y'all remember, y'all remember that um, company called MoviePass? Does anybody remember that? Yeah. That Ed, Ed weren't you like the number one VIP, like, movie girl? You probably brought them, put them under. Yo, let me tell you. Movie Pass. I was an early, early, early adopter. I, I maybe maybe single digits user. You know who put me on? Ashley, who's on this call right now, put me on to Movie Pass when we were working at General Assembly, and we've been kind of part of a movie going gang ever since. So I know she has big, big thoughts on this Oscars announcement, right, Ashley? Let them know. I love. You're on, I love. Oh, there you go. Uh huh. I love how you just put me into this. Um, I don't, I don't, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know how the Oscars and movie pass have anything to together. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I mean, cause you see movies. I don't think I've ever seen an Oscar movie on movie pass. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. The Oscars seem like they're doing as little as possible. Like, do you think, do you think maybe, do people even still watch the Oscars? Like, are they are the ratings have they been dipping, or is this like is this like a flailing attempt to be relevant again? I don't. I have no idea. Aren't the Oscars the one that now does they don't have a host anymore because of the whole Kevin Hart thing? Yeah, and it actually went really well. So I, I'll admit I don't watch a lot of TV. I'm sure I'm someone who trashes the Oscars and. But then if it's on, I, I do kind of watch it. I, I, and I think that's like a, how a lot of us are. It's, it's kind of easy thing to make fun of, but the, maybe Jasmine's not. Maybe I'm just the only one. But the numbers I saw were still that the, the ratings are still yeah, like and, pretty but huge. The other thing, it's still like, a, it's like hundreds of millions of people watching the world. The other thing too, Bob, is Hollywood, remember, that's changing a little bit, but it's still a very much a business of you follow what has been working. And one of the things the Oscar does is that it tells you it tells executives in Hollywood where to invest their money. And that matters, right? Like when Black Panther does well, when, you know, if Bill Street can talk, when they win Oscars, 
Now, those execs now are looking for more of those stories. And that's also why having had all white stories being told at the Oscars is problematic because that also means most of the money is going towards those particular stories. And so the Oscar in some ways measures where Hollywood executives are going to put their bucks and and, and their backing. So in some ways that's, that, that's important. Real quick. I, I see something from Phineas. He wanted us to talk really quickly about the NFL. I did not watch the NFL last night. I don't know who did, but I know they booed. All right. uh, they had like a black national anthem. Do it. Does anyone, can anyone intelligently talk I'll, about what I'll, happened? I'll just ask a question to the group. Um, and it ties into to last week's honestly speaking episode talking about activism and I see Jasmine wrote Black Lives Marketing. Uh, I would love anyone's opinion and thoughts on the very obvious, very in-your-face marketing campaign and the way that the, the, the corporate world and the capitalist world is embracing this movement and leveraging it accordingly. And I think we, we see it most acutely. I, last night with the opening of the NFL season was sort of the most brazen example of it that I've seen in, in pop culture, if you can call it that. I thought what the NBA did was very different, but the NFL very much embracing something that everybody knows is not part of their DNA. I just thought it was, I don't know what I thought about it. Uh, I thought it was brazen is what I'll say. And I would just love anyone's thoughts on it. Yeah. Finn, the numbers are changing. Finn, four years ago when they poll white America and asked them about what do they think of black lives matter? 20% of them said they approve of it. Something like that around that number. They just pulled them again after George Floyd. It was 70 something percent. And I think that answers your question. Yeah. Piggy banks are hurting, right? That's really what's going to move balance for them. Yep. I, I think that whatever, whatever, whatever solid legislation comes out of this moment, when we look back at it, you just, I don't think you can, you, you can't detach it from the pandemic. I don't think all of this happens without the pandemic. Unfortunately, I think it, it, Jim, to your point about Oscars or, or whoever making decisions behind money, um, the change, change historically hasn't happened unless the dominant group has seen something that they can get out of it. Yep. It's the, the interest aligning, you know, and then you get change as a result, like kind of like a byproduct. It is not because of any sort of real moral reckoning necessarily. So I think this pandemic is just changing everything. If and the NFL is great. I mean, people are people are are kneeling and everything. But the NFL, the power dynamic at the NFL is really unique versus like the NBA. Black people just have more power in the NBA. But you know, this other predom predominantly black sport, the NFL, black people have less power. Um, and without this pandemic, you don't get Roger Goodell saying, "Oh, you know, maybe we were too hard on cap." You know, and then you get you know people you pull NFL. Um, fans to say that they agree that, you know, Black Lives Matter kind of thing. And even then, and even when a pandemic brings this entire globe to its knees, you still have them booing the, who was it, the Niners or whoever, um, yeah. opening night. You just, it just, it's just a hard egg to crack. Uh, and yeah. They booed in um, Arrowhead Stadium, too. Uh, they booed even when the players came to link arms for unity. These right. fucking people booed, which tells you everything, right? They want Black talent without Black humanity. That's always been the case here. Uh, can I ask a question? Is the NFL doing anything besides, you know, singing a na black national anthem? Like, is have they promising? They are. 
they're working, Alicia Keys' foundation is working with them and they're starting a, a billion dollar, I think it's a billion dollar effort to fund, someone please fact check these numbers. <laughs> but they are, they are working with uh, Alicia Keys' foundation to be funding small black businesses. Who, who's giving her that billion? I saw her post about it and it was just kind of just casually like, oh yeah, I have a billion dollar fund now. It's, it's it was just- conjunction with the NFL. It's the NFL. Mm -hmm. so what's, what's, Jay, what's Jay doing? It must is be he just Jay sitting down, it. sitting, getting paid. What's he doing? It I haven't heard anything. What is he doing? Jay, we know I, as a avid member of the Beehive, <laughs> I know at least the queen of that hive likes to move in private, and like we often find out way later, like oh, like she actually has been secretly like giving lots of funding to Black Lives Matter since 2014, and I really want to hope that Jay is also a part of whatever kind of move Alicia Keys is making with that. I know that they're like super tight, so I wouldn't be surprised, but that's me on the rumors. Maybe Courtney could speak better to that if he knows. Are the streets talking, Courtney? Are the streets why, talking? Why is, why is Courtney the king of rumors? I don't know. I don't know, Jim. I don't know. I don't know how no, I got high. that label. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, listen, I think it's one of those things where we love to attack the the Beyonce's and those people of the world because it's easier, I think. But similar to what Jasmine said, I do think people like Beyonce um, and even Jay-Z perhaps may be doing more than what is public. And yeah, I mean, that's all I can really say to that matter. I mean, I am I part of the Beehive too, Jasmine. I mean, well, so. Alicia is getting a lot of, I mean, I know I shouldn't do this, but we're in the pandemic, as you said, Eddie, and which I think is contributing to all this. We all have more time. We all have more have, I don't know if we have more capacity, but we all have more time. And so I've been reading the comments, which I know I don't suggest for anyone, but she's getting a lot of flack from people about partnering with the NFL in any way. And there's this interesting thing that I feel like constantly happens, especially in the black community, but I'll just say larger and like the woke community is like, there, it's so easy to like jump on someone and call them a sellout. And we forget that we live in capitalism and like this country is a capitalist company or company, <laughs> country and company. And, you know, like when it comes to like larger strategy, specifically with the black community, it's like the biggest thing we're missing is, is wealth. We're missing wealth in this community. And so if they're it are ways to bring in more opportunity for us to fill that wealth gap. Like sometimes you have to like partner with someone who you don't fuck with, excuse my French, in order to bring that into the community. So I, that, that's my only thought on that is people need to leave Alicia alone. <laughs> yes, I, th I think you're talking about something too, which is, you know, we clearly need broad systemic change that can really on a large level only happen with like big governmental change right that's why we talk about hr 40 reparations and all these other things but unfortunately until that happens it's kind of like you've got to pick your lane within what you can do and i think it's really easy to shit talk and like holding out for like the grand like you know plan of all the, the bigger things but there still needs to be like, there's, it's still people's lives at the end of the day that can be impacted. So it's like, do you want to, you know, yes. Do we want to impact millions and millions of people's lives? Sure. But if you can impact a hundred thousand people's lives or 50,000 people's lives, that's still notable and should still be like commended. And I think that's where it gets a little bit lost on this. And 
it's just really fun. Like as I think Kanwani on our pod last week was saying to to throw kind of Twitter buckshots behind, you know, some of the sentiment. Um, well, one real, last real thing. Last, oh yeah, yeah, go ahead. Before we, before you get into that, well, I don't know if you wanted to end on your, I wanted to just, I just wanted to bring about um, something that I've been uh, a really serious topic. Jim has been posting so many thirst traps lately. You know, Jim, can we get your thirst trap philosophy? Can you just let us in on it, Jim? Let us know how you came at a lot of the posts you've been doing recently. It's been crazy. It's been crazy. It's been hitting the internet like crazy. He's actually hiding right now. Just, just to step away. I don't even know what you're talking about, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a question though. I have a question. I came across several friends in the last, I mean, this has been happening for a while, but specifically in the last two weeks with some people I love a lot, white friends. And one of the, one of the conversations we've been having is, so this is for the white friends on this, this talk. Um, one of the things often they'll bring up is, hey, Jim, I want to try, but I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, right? And on one hand, I want to say, shut the fuck up. I don't feel sorry for you. Good luck. If this is, if this is your biggest problem is worrying about this, saying the wrong thing, that's not my business. On the other hand, I also understand where they're coming from because, you know, some of these people feel like, man, everything I do, I will be attacked. I don't know what's right. I don't know what to say. And obviously, this is a part of why we have not had this conversation, right? Um, white people have the luxury not to have it, and they have not had it for so long. And now when it's time to have it, a lot of people feel afraid. They're afraid to talk. And I think one of the things that has worked well in a lot of my relationships is that a lot of times I can step back and be able to have those conversations and sometimes remove my emotion from it. But that comes with a lot of privilege, right? Male privilege, the fact that I'm not from this country, so I have a very strong history and a background, which I came from being from Haiti. And some of my African-American friends will not be able to do that at times. And it's not their job to coddle white people to make them feel good and don't feel like they're going to be attacked. But at the same time, I do understand those people angle where they feel like if they say anything wrong, everybody comes at them and they get canceled, quote unquote. Um, I do think that's a little weird because people should have room to make mistakes and do shit and say shit because that's the only way we're going to get to the next level in the first place. And also those same people should be aware that when they do make mistakes and say stupid stuff, they're going to get corrected and they learn from it and they move on. So to white friends on this call, what has it been like for you, especially in the last six months, especially some of you who have conservative, racist families or friends or whatever? You don't feel bad. I'm sure I have a few of those too. What has been the last four months regarding having this type of conversation and feeling like maybe you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, so therefore you stayed away from the conversation, or perhaps you have friends who've mentioned stuff like that to you in the past four months or so. What has that been like, and does that make sense? Is this something any of you on this call have dealt with yourself in the last four months? Sorry, Ed, I know you wanted gossip, but I needed to ask this question, so <laughs> No, that's good. Follow it up with the hardball. Does anyone want to jump in? I, I certainly can talk to this, but Ashley or Finn? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in talking to people that aren't white, I think I, I've been more 
self-editing in my head, but more out of a sensitivity to not overstep that bounds. I think Eddie's mom told me once that it's not people of color or people of uh, I think we were talking about like the LGBTQ plus communities. It's not anybody in that world's job to educate you, to be that token person. I actually asked Eddie a bunch of questions and got a bunch of books and I've been reading the crap done out of them. But uh, as terms of talking to my racist family members, that's been, that's been rough. I've gone in hard. I was in Connecticut, in rural Connecticut, which exists. And uh, it's interesting to see such a dichotomy between the people that you are have grown up with that have completely different views from you. And you just sort of, you know, sit back and, and have those conversations. I'm not actually sure what you want to know from those conversations, but they're, they're met with probably the same amount of racism and bigotry as you could possibly imagine yeah i'll i'll jump in just quickly i think i think the one of the biggest changes over the last several months has been uh i think certainly how different everybody feels about it in the in the white community or in in the white community or in my family or extended family i think many of us come at these issues from a very binary perspective, right and wrong. And I believe that there are, very, there are a lot of binary examples of right and wrong in this conversation, but ultimately, and something I learned just by listening to the people close to me and the people on the show and, and Courtney and just people close to me is that every single issue within this issue is nuanced and there is nuance all over the place. And I think, the conversations that are had in the white community that are not inclusive of somebody who has a different perspective are very binary. I think that's been a very large eye-opening for me is that these conversations are not happening in a nuanced way at all, really, unless there's somebody that has that understanding or if there's somebody from the black community or that is just non-white and has a different experience they bring the nuance to the conversation. It's not happening with any real nuance. So that was kind of eye-opening for me as I thought, and I live in a bubble, you know, New York, and there's, I think a lot of bubbles that we all live in, but that's kind of eye-opening is that the lack of nuance in the conversation. And not to say that that lack of nuance is always wrong, right? But it's just not dynamic and it's not nuanced. So I think that's been a big eye-opener for me. Uh, my experience too, to your question, Jim, specifically is just kind of like, I don't know, a lot of listening, a lot of listening, trying, trying to, trying to be a listener. So yeah, that's, that's my experience. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's my thought. Ashley just wrote, you know, for me, it's both. Don't think you can educate unless you understand where someone's coming from right or wrong. And I, I think that's, that's a valid point. Cause I think when you go to have these conversations with white friends or white family members, who aren't going to be in the same side of way of thinking, they're already coming in super charged to the conversation. So for you to then just immediately start sharing facts or stories, they're not listening. So for, and, and that's just how people you know, are in life. You have to give them at least a second to at least have them say their case or kind of say their piece. 
And if you do give that, at least it's some unarming where at least you can, you know, talk through it with them and have a better semblance uh, of where they're coming from. It doesn't mean they're going to necessarily agree with you on the other end, because that's just how people are. We're like stubborn motherfuckers on a lot of different things, but it, it's the best thing you can do. And, you know, sometimes I'm telling Ed and Jim, like I've been in some conversations where I just kind of lose my mind and I don't, I'm not well, happy about doing mind. that. Been, that's not you've been throwing productive. blows, man. I've been getting some, I've been getting in some verbal blows, but I've been getting verbal blows for years and years and years. It's nothing new. I, I try to be at least a bit smarter with it, you know, because at a minimum, it's actually doesn't feel really good when you just get in a yelling match. It feels much more rewarding. If you're not going to make a difference, at least make them feel foolish by the shit that they don't know. So, you know, th these are tough things. Ed thinks I'm crazy for even trying to like have these tough conversations as much as I do. But at some, you know, sometimes I, I, I back away from it. Sometimes I'm like, fuck it. I, I, I can't let this one go. Like, I, I have to, to lean in here. But I think for the people who avoid them, it's for, you know, they themselves aren't comfortable within their own knowledge of the topic because they've lived in an immense bubble their whole life where they haven't been forced to because there was no reason to societally as a white person because you get to live in a pretty little bubble of like gender reveals and like and brunches like the the shit just like really doesn't matter like I, if i hang out with like groups of like white friends no one brings up any of these topics ever nothing hard is discussed the hardest thing that is discussed is your wedding got pushed back because of COVID, but never about actually the sadness or the trial and tribulations of COVID, just your wedding. So like that, that's the, the bridge we're on. <laughs> anyway. That's I, I think those hard conversations don't just, I mean, it's probably more applicable for white families, but like my family's Latino, they're more or less white Latinos. And I come from a family of deep, like, generational black Republicans and I've had to have a lot of tough conversations. And I mean, I think one, and I love what you said, Ashley, about being able to come in with the intention of understanding and education. I, I try to lean in with the first one of just understanding first. Cause for me, often when I like go on these Twitter holes and like read these comments, I'm like, I just don't understand and maybe it's my background in education or just because I'm a super curious human, but I constantly, I just want to understand. So I often go in with more questions than I do facts or the intent of like, let me make this person look stupid as fuck. Like, I, I think in general in this country and maybe even largely in the world, like something we as the human race need to lean into is the concept of nuance, is the, com the concept of the gray area. And when I've been able to do that, and I can't always do that, I mostly don't have the capacity to, but when I'm resourced enough to come into those tough conversations with the eye of curiosity, what I've often found is that most people want to be heard, yeah. that most humans in general are scared, and that a lot of our values, and I'm, I'm speaking very broadly, but a lot of our values are, aren't too different. Like we want to be well taken care of. We want to make sure that our family's safe. We want to have access to the things that we need. And I think when I'm able to really like get to that point of the conversation, it's a lot easier to then come in and be like, oh, well, that's interesting because over here in some subsets of like Black Lives Matter or in, you know, uh, 
abolish the ICE movement. That's a, a lot of what these folks are worried about. It takes so much patience and it's not our responsibility as black people, as women, as LGBTQ folks, it's not our responsibility to do that. But when we, I think sadly for the folks of us who can, it's, yeah. it's so, it can be so helpful. Very much. And I'm one of those people, um, Jazz. I, I, as a matter of fact, I, I'm working on a documentary now about qualified immunity. And one of our best partners we have is a conservative guy from the Cato Institute. And what we've learned is that, you know, for him, uh, I had to get him to understand that, that the violence, yeah, is disproportionately affecting black people. But usually the way violence works is that, especially violence by the government, it doesn't stop with one group, at least to the other. When, when one group is not there to receive that violence, it goes to the lowest member of even the majority group. So poor white people pay a heavy price for police violence too. Um, and so the, I think the thing that has worked for me best, and, and again, this has a lot to do with not being from this country, because I've experienced both the highs and the lows of what America has to offer. And what I've realized was that like, holy crap, this country is everything to everyone. It is the greatest country. If you like a white guy with high education and working in, I don't know, tech or some shit or Wall Street, this country is great for you. If, if your parents escaped Nazi Germany and they end up here and then two generations later, you know, you're completely in a different position. And the same is true for someone who's black or an immigrant or gay or such and such and such. And I think when we understand that America is literally everything to everyone and what it is to you may not be exactly what it is to me, then we can have a conversation. The problem is that the people that's been, that think it's been great for them don't want to hear that it has not been great for anyone else because now it starts to make them feel like they have not earned what they have. And who wants to believe that they didn't earn something, right? And so that, that becomes a big part of the challenge. And, you know, a lot of the conversations I have, even if people are conservatives, well, quote unquote libertarian, which is a euphemism for conservative, um, those are usually like Jewish friends, right? And there's a difference there too with them, right? There's other conversations I can have with them um, that perhaps I may not be able to have with a Catholic person in Ohio. So all of that matters in, in, in a way. And I think for me, understanding that, you know what, this country is everything to everyone. I mean, it is the only country where a young black man can get killed on the other corner and then you turn around, another young black man gets $10 million to go shoot a ball, right? Like that's America in many ways. And so I think once we understand that, it really helps us to have these conversations. Uh, but the groups in power have to be able to willing to have that conversation. Genesis, you want to jump in here? I saw you just joined the Confederate the chat, so flag can't... slayer herself. Yeah. What up? We appreciate, hey, uh, we appreciate you, Jen. Yeah, I had to pop in and just kind of listen in and see what's going on. Um, okay, nice to see you. I miss you. It's good to see y'all too, man. I miss all y'all. I was just, just with Laura last night in Chicago. Um, I was just listening. Like Jasmine brought up a lot of good points that I was definitely like in my head, not into. I was doing a talk at JSU and this mathematician was in the audience and he said that the best way to solve a division problem is to find the common denominator. And I thought it was pretty brilliant. I like that. When a, yeah. When a You're always to dropping like, knowledge. Huh? You're always dropping knowledge. Oh, no, but this knowledge was dropped on me and I forget the gentleman who said it, but it was, he was making an analogy to civic discourse of like finding that commonality that we all have right we all want to see our children safe educated 
we want health care like there's these basic human necessities that we all want and need i feel like with my in my experience like speaking to like neo-confederates like about the flag issue and things another thing that jasmine said was genuine curiosity right so it's like i was genuinely curious like how anyone could support that symbol and say that it's their heritage right and what i found when i spoke to enough of them what it was was lack of education yeah. it's like the whitewashing of history that they're taught from their parents and grandparents and so i guess my genuine curiosity kind of brought their walls down a little bit right because i'm i'm listening i'm like i don't understand like i don't get it i know what i was taught i know what i mean you say you're christian i know what your christian faith teaches but how are you contradicting it so grossly i was talking to this one kid you know confederate flag proud ancestors fought in the war and he goes you know i'm a proud confederate some of the confederate members you know but i'm not racist and i said did you know the kkk was founded by confederate veterans and he had no clue he didn't know he was surprised to learn that so i think education is really important in like without speaking to each other it's really hard for education to move forward because if not you're in your own circles and that echo chamber is there and you're just uh hearing regurgitated history which a lot of it is false here in america we haven't come to terms with the brutality of like what that really was about and is about right mm -hmm. um but anyway that's just my two cents fob i know you're going to end this uh genesis you said something else so so important and is what i've learned also talking to some of my friends is that I'm always shocked by how much some of my white friends do not know about the history that I know about. And once I realize how uneducated they are about a lot of these issues, sometimes it allows me to then switch my position and really listen to them. And I'm talking about people who have Harvard degrees and PhDs and all sorts of things, but there's a very particular history they've been taught and it's not the history that we know. And I think a lot of times understanding that, I start to kind of feel like a little bad for, for some of the friends I have conversation, like, holy crap, like this person doesn't even know this happened. So therefore, of course, they're gonna believe A, B, C, and D if they don't know this happened. If they don't know that Jim literally was kept out of the suburbs, like by law, I could not move into the suburbs, right? All of a sudden, they just thought that Jim didn't wanna live there. I mean, it is boring, I don't wanna live there, but I'm just saying, a lot of them don't even know basic things that has happened to us so therefore it's really hard for them to connect the current moment right to the history which they know and jen you know that 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 was so crucial because in my conversation with a lot of folks even liberal folks in new york city same thing so it, it's really important word i just want to i know we're way way over time but i wanted to add one devil's advocate to what, what to what y'all are saying about communication and education what if people don't want to know <laughs> what if what if what if <laughs> so but but for real like hear me out right that is true it's there's hear a me big swath of people that don't want to know <laughs> right right what if what if um it's beautiful and what if education and dialogue and framing things a certain way just don't do anything because i, I think of it kind of like like this sort of analogy when people were protesting against same-sex marriage before the supreme court ruling you know, they were saying like, this is gonna change the definition of marriage, which is correct actually, because their definition of marriage necessitated exclusion. 
Like that is how they defined it. And that's how, that's how they understood and identified with it. So, I mean, when they say that same sex marriage is going to change the definition of it, they're actually being correct. I, so what, what happens is you need to completely, you know, uh, abolish the whole definition of it. Right. Or, you know, keep certain things, but you know what I'm saying? So I kind of liken that to the idea of just, listen, just citizenship and whiteness. I think people who are really rabid, Trump supporters and super conservative and the deep, deep counties of old Confederate states that will never, ever, 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 ever vote for a Democrat or anybody progressive or whoever, the way that they defined American citizenship necessitates the exclusion of black people or or the, you know, black people needing to be at the bottom for their definition to actually exist. Um, because if that if that wasn't the case, then their whole world would be turned upside down. That the identity of, of needing to understand America this way is being exceptional and citizenship defined in this way, necessarily excluding black people and, and, and immigrants. That is what they're fighting for. So it's kind of almost like you're trying to argue against gravity and saying, no, listen, this is actually a different definition. They're like, no, no, I like my definition. I'm gonna argue for my definition because my definition um, you know, it, it is an interest of mine. It actually gives me real things, not just psychological, by the way. So it, I just, I just think that, um, and that definition of citizenship is just as old as this country. In fact, it's longer. It's, it's more, it's, it's older than this country going to colonial Virginia. Um, so, I mean, how do you fight that? I don't think that we can necessarily, I think that, um, what's going to change it is going to be some crazy, crazy, external thing that happens and shakes everything up and, and then and, and then aligns their interest with ours. I think that that's what's going to happen. I just I just don't think education is going to do it. They got to go. They got to die out eventually. It's all with time. <laughs> they all got to die out eventually. And I don't mean that in a way of like, you know, people got to die, but it's like, <laughs> like with Mississippi, the flag changed because a lot of the older people, you know, went on the people who wanted to keep the status quo you know like if that's what progress is right and sometimes the progress against a slow assault is slow i feel it's you slow. but yeah. but 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 also you know i didn't see a bunch of 70 year olds marching in charlottesville i saw a lot of young people so it seems <laughs> like true. this thing can can you know can span across generations which it has but yeah, you know so all right i'm done being a downer sorry everybody Hi, right, Professor Ed, with the last word. We appreciate you all. This, we, we need to do more of these. This was fun. Yeah, this was fun as hell. More to come. All right, everyone. Appreciate you. It's a wrap. We'll be back next week.